Volume Two, Chapter Thirty of *The Marble Faun*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. *The Marble Faun* by Nathaniel Hawthorne, Volume Two, Chapter Thirty. Donatello's Bust. Kenyon, it will be remembered, had asked Donatello's permission to model his bust. The work had now made considerable progress, and necessarily kept the sculptor's thoughts broading much and often upon his host's personal characteristics. These it was his difficult office to bring out from their depths, and interpret them to all men, showing them what they could not discern for themselves, yet must be compelled to recognize at a glance, on the surface of a block of marble. He had never undertaken a portrait-bust which gave him so much trouble as Donatello's. Not that there was any special difficulty in hitting the likeness, though even in this respect the grace and harmony of the features seemed inconsistent with the prominent expression of individuality. But he was chiefly perplexed how to make this genial and kind type of countenance the index of the mind within his acuteness and his sympathies indeed were both somewhat at fault in their efforts to enlighten him as to the moral phase through which the count was now passing if at one sitting he caught a glimpse of what appeared to be a genuine and permanent trait it would probably be less perceptible on a second occasion and perhaps have vanished entirely at a third so evanescent a show of character threw the sculptor into despair not marble or clay but cloud and vapour was the material in which it ought to be represented even the ponderous depression which constantly weighed upon donatello's heart could not compel him into the kind of repose which the plastic art requires hopeless of a good result kenyon gave up all preconceptions about the character of his subject and let his hands work uncontrolled with the clay somewhat as a spiritual medium while holding a pen yields it to an unseen guidance other than that of her own will now and then he fancied that this plan was destined to be the successful one a skill and insight beyond his consciousness seemed occasionally to take up the task the mystery the miracle of imbuing an inanimate substance with thought feeling and all the intangible attributes of the soul appeared on the verge of being wrought and now as he flattered himself the true image of his friend was about to emerge from the facile material bringing with it more of donatello's character than the keenest observer could detect at any one moment in the face of the original vain expectation some touch whereby the artist thought to improve or hasten the result interfered with the design of his unseen spiritual assistant and spoilt the whole there was still the moist brown clay indeed and the features of donatello but without any semblance of intelligent and sympathetic life the difficulty will drive me mad i verily believe cried the sculptor nervously look at the wretched piece of work yourself my dear friend and tell me whether you recognize any manner of likeness to your inner man 
none replied donatello speaking the simple truth it is like looking a stranger in the face this frankly unfavorable testimony so wrought with the sensitive artist that he fell into a passion with the stubborn image and cared not what might happen to it thenceforward wielding that wonderful power which sculptors possess over moist clay however refractory it may show itself in certain respects he compressed elongated widened and otherwise altered the features of the bust in mere recklessness and at every change inquired of the count whether the expression became anywise more satisfactory stop cried donatello at last catching the sculptor's hand let it remain so by some accidental handling of the clay entirely independent of his own will kenyon had given the countenance a distorted and violent look combining animal fierceness with intelligent hatred had hilda or had miriam seen the bust with the expression which it had now assumed they might have recognized donatello's face as they beheld it at that terrible moment when he held his victim over the edge of the precipice what have i done said the sculptor shocked at his own casual production it were a sin to let the clay which bears your features harden into a look like that cain never wore an uglier one for that very reason let it remain answered the count who had grown pale as ashes at the aspect of his crime thus strangely presented to him in another of the many guises under which guilt stares the criminal in the face do not alter it chisel it rather in eternal marble i will set it up in my oratory and keep it continually before my eyes sadder and more horrible is a face like this alive with my own crime than the dead skull which my forefathers handed down to me but without in the least heeding donatello's remonstrances the sculptor again applied his artful fingers to the clay and compelled the bust to dismiss the expression that had so startled them both believe me said he turning his eyes upon his friend full of grave and tender sympathy you know not what is requisite for your spiritual growth seeking as you do to keep your soul perpetually in the unwholesome region of remorse it was needful for you to pass through that dark valley but it is infinitely dangerous to linger there too long there is poison in the atmosphere when we sit down and broad in it instead of girding up our loins to press onward not despondency not slothful anguish is what you now require but effort has there been an unalterable evil in your young life then crowd it out with good or it will lie corrupting there for ever and cause your capacity for better things to partake in noisome corruption you stir up many thoughts said donatello pressing his hand upon his brow but the multitude and the whirl of them make me dizzy they now left the sculptor's temporary studio without observing that his last accidental touches with which he hurriedly effaced the look of deadly rage had given the bust a higher and sweeter expression than it had hitherto worn it is to be regretted that kenyon had not seen it for only an artist perhaps can conceive the irksomeness the irritation of brain the depression of spirits 
that resulted from his failure to satisfy himself after so much toil and thought as he had bestowed on donatello's bust in case of success indeed all this thoughtful toil would have been reckoned not only as well bestowed but as among the happiest hours of his life whereas deeming himself to have failed it was just so much of life that had better never have been lived for thus does the good or ill result of his labor throw back sunshine or gloom upon the artist's mind the sculptor therefore would have done well to glance again at his work for here were still the features of the antique form but now illuminated with a higher meaning such as the old marble never bore donatello having quitted him kenyon spent the rest of the day strolling about the pleasant precincts of montebene where the summer was now so far advanced that it began indeed to partake of the ripe wealth of autumn apricots had long been abundant and had passed away and plums and cherries along with them but now came great juicy pears melting and delicious and peaches of goodly size and tempting aspect though cold and watery to the palate compared with the sculptor's rich reminiscences of that fruit in america the purple figs had already enjoyed their day and the white ones were luscious now the contadini who by this time knew kenyon well found many clusters of ripe grapes for him in every little globe of which was included a fragrant draught of the sunny Montebene wine. Unexpectedly, in a nook close by the farmhouse, he happened upon a spot where the vintage had actually commenced. A great heap of early ripened grapes had been gathered and thrown into a mighty tub. In the middle of it stood a lusty and jolly contadino, nor stood merely, but stamped with all his might and danced amain, while the red juice bathed his feet and threw its foam midway up his brown and shaggy legs here then was the very process that showed so picturesquely in scripture and in poetry of treading out the wine-press and dyeing the feet and garments with a crimson effusion as with the blood of a battlefield the memory of the process does not make the tuscan wine taste more deliciously the contadini hospitably offered kenyon a sample of the new liquor that had already stood fermenting for a day or two he had tried a similar draught however in a year past and was little inclined to make proof of it again for he knew that it would be a sour and bitter juice a wine of woe and tribulation and that the more a man drinks of such liquor the sorrier he is likely to be the scene reminded the sculptor of our new england vintages where the big piles of golden and rosy apples lie under the orchard trees in the mild autumn sunshine and the creaking cider mill set in motion by a circumgyratory horse is all agush with the luscious use to speak frankly the cider making is the more picturesque sight of the two and the new sweet cider an infinitely better drink than the ordinary unripe tuscan wine such as it is however the latter fills thousands upon thousands of small flat barrels and still growing thinner and sharper loses the little life it had as wine and becomes apotheosized as a more praiseworthy vinegar 
Yet all these vineyard scenes and the processes connected with the culture of the grape had a flavor of poetry about them. The toil that produces those kindly gifts of nature, which are not the substance of life, but its luxury, is unlike other toil. We are inclined to fancy that it does not bend the sturdy frame and stiffen the overwrought muscles, like the labor that is devoted in sad, hard earnest to raise grain for sour bread. Certainly the sunburnt young men and dark-cheeked laughing girls, who weeded the rich acres of Montebeni, might well enough have passed for inhabitants of an unsophisticated Arcadia. Later in the season, when the true vintage time should come, and the wine of sunshine gush into the vats, it was hardly too wild a dream that Bacchus himself might revisit the haunts which he loved of old. But, alas, where now would he find the fawn with whom we see him consorting in so many an antique group? Donatello's remorseful anguish saddened this primitive and delightful life. Kenyon had a pain of his own, moreover, although not all a pain, in the never-quite, never-satisfied yearning of his heart towards Hilda. He was authorized to use little freedom towards that shy maiden, even in his visions, so that he almost reproached himself when sometimes his imagination pictured in detail the sweet years that they might spend together in a retreat like this. It had just that rarest quality of remoteness from the actual and ordinary world, a remoteness through which all delights might visit them freely, sifted from all troubles, which lovers so reasonably insist upon in their ideal arrangements for a happy union. It is possible, indeed, that even Donatello's grief and Kenyon's pale, sunless affection lent a charm to Montebeni, which it would not have retained amid a more abundant joyousness. The sculptor strayed amid its vineyards and orchards, its dells and tangled shrubberies, with somewhat the sensations of an adventurer who should find his way to the site of ancient Eden, and behold its loveliness through the transparency of that gloom which has been brooding over those haunts of innocence ever since the fall. Adam saw it in a brighter sunshine, but never knew the shade of pensive beauty which Eden won from his expulsion. It was in the decline of the afternoon that Kenyon returned from his long, musing ramble. Old Tommaso, between whom and himself for some time past there had been a mysterious understanding, met him in the entrance hall, and drew him a little aside. "'The signorina would speak with you,' he whispered. "'In the chapel?' asked the sculptor. "'No, in the saloon beyond it,' answered the butler. "'The entrance you once saw the signorina appear through, it is near the altar, hidden behind the tapestry.' Kenyon lost no time in obeying the summons. End of chapter 30, volume 2, read by Lars Rolander.